Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy, as I prefer, that you bring to church, or you have an app on your device, I'd like you to find with me the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find the book of 1 Corinthians, I'd like to draw your attention to chapter 6, specifically verses 1 through 8. For those of you who are guests of ours, whether you're joining us through the gift of technology or you're here with us live, we're in a sermon series called Do You Not Know? Those are not my words. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul. In fact, in chapter 5 and chapter 6, the texts of this sermon series, Paul says this phrase seven times. In chapter 5, verse 6, and then again in verse 2, verse 3, verse 9, verse 15, verse 16, and verse 19 of chapter 6, Paul uses this rhetorical phrase, do you not know? It is not coming from a mood of warmth. He is frustrated. Now, he's not in his sin or in his anger being sinful. It's actually righteous indignation. Paul is an apostle. He was significant in planting the church in Corinth. He left Corinth to do what God had called him to do, which is to continue to travel, continue to share, continue to preach. One of the ways that he ministered to the places that he had already been is through letter writing. Of course, once Paul is locked in prison, many of his letters are written because he cannot travel He cannot preach and he cannot visit. He cannot go, so he goes with the power of his pen. If you are a guest of ours, the preaching ministry at Church at the Mill has a high view of Scripture. So we choose to walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, and we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And in this scandalous series, we're dealing with a church that's lost its way. Now, the good news is, is that this series is not reactionary. In other words, I didn't choose chapter 5 and 6 and the difficult content there because I feel as though there's a parallel. It's being proactive. We want to study what God's Word says to be ready. And no doubt, as certainly in a ministry like this, there are many, many of you who are walking in righteousness and in fear of the Lord, and some of you may have found yourself discouraged and hurting because you have strayed or someone in your life has strayed. And they've not just strayed a little, they've strayed way off the course to the point that there is scandal, there is salacious sin in their life. Now, most people think about 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as dealing with the scandal of sexual sin in the church. And we've dealt with that for the last two weeks. If you'd like to catch up, those sermons are available through multiple uh, means of media. And next week, we'll go back into the subject of God's word for us about sexual sin, sexual purity, forgiveness, healing, and wholeness in him. But at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul brings forth another problem. You see, this is not a series just about sexual sin, and sexual sin's not the only scandal in the church at Corinth. This is a series about the sin of trying to hurt one another through abusing the legal recourse of suing another Christian. Lawsuits among Christians. In other words, if I were going to give this sermon a title, it would simply be putting 
the trial of Christian lawsuits on the stand. The trial of Christian lawsuits. I don't have to tell you that we live in a litigious culture, a culture wrought with litigation. Have you ever noticed how many billboards are on the interstate where lawyers are advertising, almost encouraging you to get rear-ended? I mean, all you have to do is remember their last name or their URL, their website, dial all nines, baby. And then once we leave the interstate, we find those tiny little signs at county road intersections. Need a divorce? Easy divorce? One that broke my heart one time was convenient divorce. That couldn't be a bigger lie that has ever been told, and yet we live in a society where there are all kinds of abuses of the legal system. Fortunately, this passage is rather narrow because the legal system in and of itself is not a bad thing. I don't have time this morning, but I could make a philosophical and theological argument in another context that the legal system of the United States, based on the founding on Judeo-Christian values, is a good and wonderful thing within its means. The reason our society has order is because of our laws and our law enforcement and the men and women who serve us each and every day in blue to help us and to protect us. And in any society and in any community and certainly in any country, there are always going to be abuses. But most of you today woke up without the fear of threat or danger as you made your way to worship. And even as you are here, you are by default in the absence of your home. Unless, of course, you're watching online in your home. But for most of us in the room here, we're not in our home. And while there are break-ins and there are robberies and there is violence and there is crime and we're not immune to that, for the most part, we don't worry about our possessions when we leave Because we do live in a society where most citizens obey the law and the legal system has served us well. doesn't mean it's not room to be reformed. It doesn't mean that it's perfect. But if you ever travel the world, especially if you ever travel the undeveloped world, one of the greatest threats against people's welfare is simple, petty crime. It's very difficult because there is no legal system to protect the average citizen. And so this is not a condemnation on that. But it is a rather riveting courtroom scene. We love riveting courtroom scenes. A a fellow Alabamian from Monroeville, Alabama named Harper Lee wrote a book in 1960 called To Kill a Malkinburg. And in 1962, Gregory Peck played the lead actor, Atticus Finch, in one of the more famous stories in American history. And the riveting court scene of that movie still grips me every time I see it. A more modern example would be Tom Cruise in A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth. If you go to church at the mill, baby, you can handle the truth. (laughs) And then we know that the drama in the courtroom from the movie screen is only powerful because it's reality. We all watched OJ try that glove on. Every one of us did. And we were riveted by that. And that set into motion. Recently, we've been so sad for Johnny and Amber and everybody else dealing with that court case. And we see it unfold in our lives. If you spend any time watching that trial, I'll see you at the altar here earlier. (laughs) 
we need you to sign up to volunteer for more here at this church. Don't waste your time with mess like that. <laughs> what about the trial of Christian lawsuits? When you study law, and it's a fascinating subject, there are different theories of legal arguments. One of them is based off of Aristotle. You read about Aristotle when you study the ancients. The Aristotelian legal argument goes something like this. You introduce the issue, you present your case, you address the opposition, you provide proof, and you present your conclusion. I want to say, husbands, don't try this at home. <laughs> Pay attention to my last point in a few moments when you want to argue with your wife. But this is the way in which a legal argument is made. And there are men and women in our community who are compensated very well because of their ability to stand in a courtroom before a judge, perhaps before a jury of peers of the defendant, and make this argument. And make their argument with convincing evidence that causes the conclusion to go in the direction of a favorable ruling for their client. And when we watch this, it's a powerful thing. Now, Paul's not an attorney, but he was a brilliant scholar. And what he does in verses 1 through verse 8 of chapter 6 is he actually asks around eight, depending on how you divide the Greek, around eight rhetorical questions. Now, we know that rhetoric, the idea of influencing and moving people with speech, is where we get the term, I'm asking a rhetorical question. In other words, I'm asking a question to prove a point. I'm not asking a question because I don't know the answer to it. Rather, I'm asking a question to poke holes in your logic to get you to the point where you understand the point I'm trying to make. This is the art of a rhetorical question. And Paul asked somewhere around eight of them, and when you read the passage with me silently as I read it aloud, notice the amount of English question marks that are inserted by the translators to show you the tense and the verbiage that he's using. I want to show you what I mean with these eight questions because ultimately these eight questions is Paul's way of putting Christian frivolous lawsuits on trial they take the witness stand, see him as the cross examiner, and listen to the questions he asks, beginning in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law? That phrase is used twice in this passage, the idea of going into the legal courts there of the Greco-Roman world in Corinth. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Question mark. Or do you not know, there comes one of our phrases that was the summation of our series, that the saints will judge the world, question mark. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know, there it is again, that we are to judge angels? How much more than the matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases... Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother. There's that phrase, goes to law, goes to law. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. The context of this sin is pride. If we were to do an overview of 1 Corinthians, we would find that in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, we've already preached through those, that Paul is astounded by their arrogance, their spiritual pride. What happens when we grow prideful spiritually is that there is a compartmentalization that takes place. We compartmentalize our supposed freedom in Christ. We claim it. We believe it. To some degree, we may even enjoy the confidence it brings, but we don't allow that gospel truth to penetrate other areas of our life. And so what you find is that double lives are lived. Now, we saw this first in the manifestation of the toleration of sexual sin in the church, chapters 5 and so forth. And what Paul is most astounded by is not the sexual sin, it's the church's toleration of it, indifference toward it, or even justification and acceptance of it. Now he turns to another issue. And what is the issue? Well, in the legal terms, this would be Paul first presenting the case. This is his case. Now, the legal definition of a case is pretty simple. A general term of any action, cause, or action, lawsuit, or controversy. The case, in fact, you know this. We watch on TV cases that are being played out in front of us. When we listen to a lawyer argue before a court or per perhaps a counsel of his peers, they will quote case law precedents from previous decisions that were made. We all know about Roe v. Wade, though many of us in the room were not born when that case was heard before the Supreme Court in 1973. But the case was overturned because of Dobbins, a case coming out of the state of Mississippi, where our current Supreme Court ruled not in favor or against the right for an abortion, but rather they said Roe's law is fallacy is full of fallacy because it claimed that abortion was and is a constitutional right. And because abortion is not addressed anywhere in the Constitution, it is not a constitutional right. And you will hear the pro-abortion crowd talk about constitutional rights being violated and being taken away. And yet our founders would have not even fathomed addressing the atrocity of abortion in the document that is known, of our, known as our Constitution. And when there are rights that are brought up and debated in a democratic republic, and they're not addressed in the Constitution, then they are for the legislators to decide, the representatives to decide. In other words, the people by their vote should decide about an issue and not the court, thus Roe being struck down and Dobbins being upheld. So we all have heard these discussions and we've learned about them of late. What is Paul's case? What is he saying? Look at verse 1. The Bible says, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So here we have a very specific issue. And this is important because you can misapply this passage. I, I certainly have been involved in legal situations. In fact, I, I don't know if you even know this, but our church has an insurance policy against such situations. And as churches grow, they have to insure the organization and their pastors more and more against what we hope are always wrongful lawsuits. We can't remove ourselves from a society that's going to abuse litigious action. But that's not the issue here. The issue here is that within the church, there are professed Christians 
dragging one another into the pagan courts. There is a Greek philosopher from the first century, not a biblical writer, named Dio Chrysostom, kind of an interesting name. He's quoted as saying this about Corinth. In Corinth, there were lawyers innumerable perverting justice. Now, I happen to like lawyers, especially the ones in our church. I appreciate them. Law is a fascinating thing. But anytime a society begins to abuse the legal system, one profession that continually shows itself as a place of increase is law. Look at the billboards. Look at the manifestation of advertising. Look at the effort to market toward this victim mentality that every incident that happens in your life is a potential way for you to grow wealthy immediately. And so what happens in this is that many good and righteous men and women who serve in law would think more negatively of this movement than someone in my profession or in your profession. But in the first century, while the Greco-Roman world was known for its legal system and many times the legal system worked, in Corinth there was obviously a perversion of it. And because of this perversion, these Corinthians, who knew their culture before they knew Christ, knew how to get what they wanted. There's even some ancient documentation that the legal system was heavily in favor of the wealthiest people. Does that sound familiar? And so if you knew the right people, if you knew the right judges, if you had enough money to hire more representation, then you could statistically fare better in the court rulings. And so these Corinthian believers, knowing all that, stepped out of their identity in Christ and were dragging one another to court over grievances. Now, no doubt the church was small. The church had not yet been established the way it is today. Can you imagine what this would do to a small congregation if within your fellowship you were trying to worship in someone's home and across the table from you was an individual who was dragging you into an outside court? One of the things that happens whenever a lawsuit is ensued is a dehumanization of all parties. That's why one of the first things that happens when you are involved in a suit is your attorney says, you don't speak about this. You don't speak to anyone about this. You don't email about this. You don't document anything about this. You communicate through me. This dehumanization at times by our attorneys is to protect us because we know that any act or action we do can be used against us in a court of law. This is why, of course, the Miranda right is read to those who are being read. You have the right to remain silent. You don't have to speak because anything you do say can and will be used against you in a court of law. And so this is Paul's case. What's the basis of this? When we come to Jesus, we don't want to abuse him or hurt him. Nobody came today to want to hurt Jesus. In fact, when we preach against sin, we always say that sin grieves the Holy Spirit. That's a deterrent to sin. It's a good deterrent. I, I don't want to hurt the Lord. He's done so much for me. I, I don't want to hurt him. I want to praise him. I want to honor him. I want to obey him. I certainly want him to be pleased with my life. I'm so thankful for his grace when I fail. But I just don't know of a sincere Christian that wakes up and says, you know what, God, today I'd really like to hurt your feelings. I'd really like to disappoint you. Well, if we are together in Christ, then you are by extension a part of the Lord. You are his body, I, I am his body. So what did Paul say to the Thessalonian Christians? He says in the book of First Thessalonians that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter 
Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So even in another issue, Paul is saying, we don't have within us, if we're truly saved, a desire to hurt other people who are a part of the body of Christ. Now, the fascinating thing about this legal case is that Paul then transitions to his legal critique. In other words, he's going to show through a series of questions how their logic is off. And this may bless you. You may learn something here you've not been taught before. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, if you're an astute Bible student, you, you may have noticed a an appearing of a contradiction. I know when I went to seminary, I had all these contradictions of the Bible. I couldn't wait for somebody to answer for me. And over the years, I have found that every place I think I struggle with the truth of God's Word, once I dig in a little deeper, it becomes so clear and so beautiful. In chapter 5, last week, Paul is making the argument about dealing with sexual sin. And verse 12 of chapter 5, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's verse 12 of chapter 5. Here's his point. In my day-to-day life, in regards of sexual sin and sexual purity, I can always find somebody on TV who's doing a lot worse than me. Paul's saying, don't worry about the world. Don't be so enamored with the fact that the lost people of the world are acting lost. Rather, pay attention to your own heart. Sweep up your own back porch. In other words, take care of your life and remember that God's going to judge the world now. But then Paul leaves the present and he talks about the eternal manifestation of the kingdom. That's why we know that this is not a contradiction. And when we look at verse 2, we'll see that. Look what he says. Or do you not know that the saints will in the future, not now, I don't judge the world now. God's going to do that. But in the future, once he establishes a new heaven and a new earth, and we are a part of that, we'll judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And then he adds a little bit. Do you not know that we are to judge angels, the angelic beings? You are created higher than an angel church family. In fact, one of the things that I gently, gently always have to correct people with, gently, is that your loved ones don't turn into angels. That precious baby that you miscarried, that child that you lost, that grandmother that you had to say goodbye to, they're not your guardian angel. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that we were created in the image of God. We are higher than the angels in the rank of priority in heaven. In fact, the angels are created servants to be messengers, which is exactly what the word angel means, just to deliver the message of God. In fact, when God wanted to deliver a message in and of himself, he would send the angel of the Lord. And the angels that rebelled with Satan were cast out of heaven in judgment and will one day be forever cast into hell. And on that day of judgment, those who are saints will rule and reign with the Lord. This goes all the way back to Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7 in the 22nd chapter, until the Ancient of Days, that's Daniel's term for Christ, came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when, when the saints possessed the kingdom. 
God is not a stingy God. He is going to share his rule and reign with us. Now, we are not to be little Christs running around with his authority. No, we are subjects to the king. But as sons and daughters of the king, whatever belongs to him belongs to us, which is why the Bible says we are heirs of the kingdom. And as heirs of the kingdom, when the son or the daughter of the king speaks, he or she carries the authority of the king. So Paul is painting this big future heavenly picture and then he says if God in his grace is going to give you the unbelievable unmatched undeserved opportunity to rule and reign with him over all of heaven and earth for all of eternity why would you reduce yourself to dragging your Christian brother before people who don't even know that God Big truth, here it is, watch this. The eternal truths about your life should determine your present decision making. See, I tend to think about eternity last and what I want now, now. But a Christian worldview comes to any difficult situation, even a grievance between you and another Christian a grievance where you may have been wronged, where injustice is done, money was taken, a covenant, a contract was broken, and you back up and you go, I'm hurting, this is a grievance, it's wrong, I need to make a series of decisions as to what to do about it, but before I dive in and think flesh first, let me remind myself, if this situation goes completely south, I'm still born again, if this situation sees that no right is ever done to me by this person again and the wrong is not righted, I still had more wrong than I could ever deal with that somebody went to Calvary for, for me. And it doesn't mean we ignore the situations. We don't turn and run. We're not helpless doormats. But it does say, the eternal truth of where I stand in redemption should affect my daily decision-making. And then Paul does something pretty interesting in his critical argument. He doesn't even argue that the grievances don't need to be settled. As long as we live together and we're still sinners, we're going to hurt each other. Be around me long enough, I'm going to rub you the wrong way. In fact, that's one of my spiritual gifts. We're going to fail one another. We, we just are. Don't, don't come into a church looking for a group of perfect people. And if you think you found it, don't stay. You'll mess it up because you're not perfect. Okay, we're, we're, we're going to wrong one another. And sometimes we're going to wrong one another and completely disagree. We will be at odds. And in those difficult situations where it does involve a disagreement that could cause property or money or even the ongoing nurturing of a relationship, sometimes somebody from the outside has to step in and help us settle a grievance. This is all part of a fallen and sinful world. And yet Paul remembers that there is a principle way back in the Old Testament for God's people to the best of their ability to handle these grievances among themselves. This is why he says, beginning in verse Three, do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than the matter pertaining to the life? So if you have such cases, Paul doesn't dismiss it. He's saying if they exist, and of course they do, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? In other words, why ask for justice from the unjustified? 
He says in the second phrase, I say this to, or excuse me, why do you lay them before the cases who have no standing in the church? Verse five, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? What do the brothers have? We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have the beauty of the word. We have the operation of the gospel within us. Go all the way back to the Old Testament when Moses is trying to lead Israel. What ultimately did he end up doing in Exodus chapter 18? Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Break them down. And then he goes on to say, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves so it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. So there's this biblical Old Testament principle that Paul would have seen happen within the synagogues all the way into the church that when two believers come at odds, their first knee-jerk reaction is not to lawyer up, but it is to rather say, how can we find resolution? And the good thing is, they're actually now available to you and me Christian lawyers, Christian law firms that specialize in mediation and arbitration between Christians who don't want suits built on vindictiveness and revenge. All you have to do is Google them. They're all over. I'm not recommending any one of them in particular. I'm saying there are alternatives. And this is his critique, which then, of course, leads to the official complaint. When you file a complaint, the legal definition of a complaint is the pleading that starts the case. Essentially, a complaint is a document that sets forth a jurisdictional basis for the court's power, the plaintiff's cause of action, and it demands judicial relief. In other words, this needs to be settled. Here's Paul's complaint. Look at verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother... And that before unbelievers. He drops it. He says, this is what is happening. And this is my complaint against you. Which then, of course, leads to the closing argument. And to me, this has the most application for your life. Look how he begins it in verse 7. Rhetorical question. To have all, or excuse me, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Did you ever have anybody when you were growing up saying, son, nobody wins in a fight? You wonder what that's like because if you ever lost a fight, you felt like the other guy won. (laughs) But nobody really wins in a fight. I I don't even meet anybody who ever gets in a legal fight, a physical fight, a verbal fight that goes, you know, that was so refreshing. That nobody wins. Now, drop that in the context of the gospel. Paul's saying, look, when you drag your brothers and sisters into these frivolous lawsuits, when you sue people who profess to know the Lord and you profess to know the Lord and you go outside of the people of God for justice, revenge, vindication, whatever you want, you've already lost. You've already lost because the witness of the church has been damaged. This is exactly why verse 7 says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And then he says something pretty powerful, something completely contradictory to our day. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? It's interesting, all the money that's listed on those billboards that have been won in these lawsuits. I've never seen an attorney list the number of cases they lose in order for you to call. 
The idea is I'm going to battle to win, and by default, if I win, you lose. I'm the winner. You're the loser. Sometimes Christians have no choice but to be involved in legal matters. In this day and age, if you do business, you know what I'm talking about. But as much as it depends on us, we step into grievances with the attitude, me winning is not the priority. The glory of God and the way that I treat you is the priority. Where do we get this from? Oh, I don't know. Let's try Jesus. You know what he says in Matthew? Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. He goes on to say, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You. Biblical interpretation is so important. Of course, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is setting the kingdom standard against the world standard. We interpret Scripture by Scripture. In other words, if God had only given us these verses ever, then it would be even more difficult to live them out. There is a multitude of Scriptures that teach us the spirit of what Jesus is trying to show us. We don't go into a lost and dying world with the mentality, I'm going to win in every circumstance. Or the facade that somehow Christians never are mistreated, never are abused, and never lose. It's just not biblical. It's just not in the Scripture. In fact, the spirit of Christianity is that not only am I going to wrong people, I know I'm going to be wronged, and therefore the question then we wrestle with, well, Lord, how many times do I forgive? You're not the first person to ask that question. Peter was in the Scriptures. And Peter came and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? I'm sure Peter thought, I'm going to show him how righteous I am. I'll do it seven times, Lord. And then Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times. Now, some of you are already doing the math because you're keeping a toll. That's not the point. The point is numeric number larger than you even thought. Ten times what you think you forgive. Why? Because forgiveness is never based on whether or not the party who has wronged you deserves it. Forgiveness is based on the forgiveness that we have received of which we did not deserve. When I meet someone who is bitter and angry and slow to forgive, I know immediately they've forgotten what they've been forgiven of. And so when we walk into these situations... And Paul calls us out on this attitude. If we were to push it down into some application, let me help you. At some point in your life, you're going to be wrong, and it's going to involve money, property, maybe some sort of criminal activity. And in that situation, you're going to come to a point of grievance. And as a Christian, you don't get to ignore 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I thought about that this week, and my job is not to be an expert in the law. I'm certainly not, and I would never seek to tell you that I have the right answer for every situation you're facing. My job is to help you understand and live this word. So I began to formulate some questions that you should ask whenever you're faced with a grievance 
that may require legal action. Now, some of you love to write. You will not write these down fast enough. They'll be posted on social media after the service. Number one, have I searched my heart and my motives to determine whether the wrong done to me is significant enough to pursue action, personally or legally? Let me condense it on down. You don't have to right every wrong. You can free yourself up from the burden of feeling like every time someone mistreats you, mistreats your business, or tries to take advantage of you, you've got to go right it. Friend, you won't right it all. This really is in the spirit of recognizing we already know who's going to right it. Justice is always coming, though often in a sinful world it's delayed. I promise you it's coming. His name is Jesus. Number two, is the person who has wronged me also a follower of Christ? I have no spiritual basis to settle a grievance against someone who's not a Christian. I can't go to them and say, brother, let us reason together. Brother or sister, you know the Lord, I know the Lord. I can't do that. And so in those situations, I'll have no other means but outside the church. But when I have reason to believe the person is a believer, now in Spartanburg and in the good old South USA, the hard part is everybody's saved, just ask them. And we know that's not true. And so you may have to make an evaluation. You have to make a discernment. Does this person exhibit the qualities of someone who is truly following Jesus? Because if they do, then it trips into, chapter, into question number three. Have I sought to resolve the matter privately, graciously, and honestly? Have I done that? Number four. If my individual efforts have failed, have I sought leadership in the church to help me in this matter? This is what Paul's argument is. Can you not come before the church? Can you not come before a Christian mediator? Can you not seek Christian legal counsel to say, I, I don't want to sue. I'm not interested in revenge or vindictiveness. I'm trying to resolve this justly. Can you show me what I might do? Number five. Have I considered not pursuing justice in this matter, even though it may result in my personal loss? In, in other words, that is an application of verse 7. I'll read verse 7 again. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? This was why they celebrated Jesus so much. When Peter was talking about Jesus at the end of his life, in the book of 1 Peter, he said these words. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God's not asking you not to have a system to trust. He's just saying, trust the gospel. Trust me. Trust me that if I lead you not to pursue justice and to take a loss, trust me that if this brings pain or uh, a lack on your part or your family, that I am faithful and I will provide. Trust me, which leads, of course, to the sixth question. If, after much prayer, deliberation, and effort, I feel it necessary to take legal action, have I explained to my legal representation that my only desire is a fair settlement for all parties involved. Vindictiveness, revenge, or an effort to hurt have no place in our lives. If you love Jesus, you don't get to say, I'm going to put you out of business. If you love Jesus, you don't get to say, I'm going to destroy you if you divorce me. If you love Jesus, you don't get to say, I'm going to go after some exorbitant amount that not only rights the wrong, but makes it so I never have to work 
again. Those things are of the world. They are wrong, and they do not honor God. Several months ago, I told you guys the story of Laurel and I in a failed adoption in between our fifth and sixth child. What I didn't tell you was is that in the midst of that, we had invested about $15,000 of upfront cost, and then the last $15,000 was to be paid to the services that ultimately end up in the orphanages of the country we were attempting to adopt from. We received a referral to send that check because a child had been recommended to us. So in faith, we wrote a check. You do the math, 15,000 twice, upfront cost, and then the referral fee is $30,000. That's a tremendous amount of money for a minister. It's a tremendous amount of money for most of us. God was so faithful to provide. So many folks helped us, but most of that money was Wallenheim's money that we had earned and saved. And we sent it. Simultaneously, the nation we were adopting from closed down and stopped doing adoptions and remains closed today, has been closed now for almost a decade. So we reached out to the agency and said, okay, it's not your fault that this nation has closed and changed its policy. We'll need to get our money back so that we can have this money to start the process again, if that's God's will. And they said, we don't have your money. We've already sent it to this developing nation. Well, once you send money to a third world country, it, you don't have to be naive about it. It's not coming back. So the idea is, is that if an agency does this, they insure the money for a situation like this, which they did not. They stopped returning our calls. I spoke to a Christian lawyer, not in filing a suit, but just to ask, what can we do? I don't want the money for a swimming pool. I don't want the money for a vacation. I want the money to put back in our account. We have a savings account that's reserved for this so that if the Lord leads us to adopt again or if we need it for foster care in the future, we have it. The attorney basically said, I don't know what you can do short of filing a suit. You can continue to call. I continue to call. I continue to call. Finally, they closed down, they disappeared online, and they lost their licensure. Apparently, we're not the only ones they mistreated. And I'm going to tell you, when you watch fifteen, even $30,000 vaporize, money that you're trying to do something good with, it's a punch in the gut. And I remember wrestling with that and dealing with that and wanting. The, the, the office was in Utah. I wanted to drive out there and introduce myself. There was really nothing we could do. And, and I remember wrestling with that and getting to a place where I looked around and I thought, have I ever missed a meal? Do the children that God you've given us, do they have what they need? Do I have a wonderful job with a wonderful group of people? Am I regretting that we lost that money? Yeah. But I trust you and I know that if it did make it to the country, it probably did feed some children. And that's far more important than my right being wronged or my wrong being righted. And I don't tell that to make you appear that I somehow have figured all this out. I have not. But I remember getting to a point where I had to realize, do, do I trust that you're in control of this? And I do. And he has. I would never discourage another person from investing in adoption. I wouldn't even share this story that you would think twice about it. It was a risk well worth taking. 
And so in a world that wants to talk about rights, take this with you. My redemption is more important than my rights. My redemption is more important than my rights. May God add his blessing to the preaching of his word.